Queens way at night. Hello, cocktail lovers. Welcome to Paris Cocktail Talk, the show brought to you by the 52 Martinis Guide to Paris Cocktail Bars. I'm Forrest Collins, and I'm here to talk to you about the trends and traditions of drinking in France. So when you think of France, obviously we're thinking wine, and there are so many opinions, expectations, and etiquette around it. And sometimes I feel like they don't always jibe with, with reality or you know what people think happens is not always what really happens. So I invited my friend Susan into the studio this month to talk about her observations and philosophies around wine. Now, she spent nearly 30 years in France. She's written multiple cookbooks on French cuisine. Um, she's hosted two decades of private wine tastings in her home. So she's going to share some of her personal observations and her philosophies around wine, including maybe her feelings on natural wine, and also breaking out of some outdated rules like serving particular wines with cheese or red-white orders. So if life in France and French food is an interest that you already have, you probably already know Susan Herman Loomis. Um, She's an internationally recognized food expert, an award-winning journalist and author. Uh, She's just put out her latest book, which is Plat du Jour. And I have to say, I have been going through it this weekend and I absolutely love it. So if French food is your kind of bag, then you definitely want to check this out. So um, she, just a quick little history. She, uh, kind of all started for her when she came to France for cooking school. She ended up co-researching and authoring The Food Lover's Guide to Paris by Patricia Wells, which I think all foodies out there are familiar with. And fast forward to to today, and she has, I think, 14 books. I might ask her to correct me on that. Um, uh, under her belt and her latest, which I just mentioned, which is Plat du Jour. And it's a book that celebrates the joy and simplicity of the dish of the day prepared with seasonal ingredients, um, as well as some little tidbits on the history of her adopted home. So uh, if you like Bouffe Bourguignon or uh, Salade Niçoise, this is the kind of book that you want to look at. Anyway, that is my quickie on Susan and her arrival and her life here in France, which probably doesn't do it justice because there's a lot, but we only have 28 minutes to do this show. So Susan, welcome. Very, very happy to have you on today. Forrest, I'm delighted to be here. Well, I am going to jump right into it. And um, I guess, I don't know, can you, before, um, well, for a large part of time, you spent in France, you were living in Normandy. Can you share kind of some of your observations on on wine habits there, what people were buying, what they were drinking, um, just kind of your general thoughts? Absolutely. When I first moved to Normandy, I swear that, you know, I moved there to interview farmers and I would go to a farm in Normandy and they would often invite me for lunch or dinner and they'd go to their wine cellar and they'd come up with a bottle of Bordeaux. And it would often be a Bordeaux from a chateau that their father, grandfather, great-grandfather had ordered wine from. So it was a very generational situation. And whether the Bordeaux was good or not was sort of beside the point. It was more the tradition of sticking with the same chateau. And I will say that I had good Bordeaux, medium Bordeaux, and Bordeaux that were completely boring. But I loved the idea of the generational attachment. Okay. Well, I do think that's really interesting, these sort of generational um, attachments to a particular wine and particular wine houses. Um, I think I feel like I've noticed that as well with, with my partner, his French family, and, and they, they really kind of generationally 
feel a, a loyalty to it. So how do you feel your ideas about wine or your thoughts and feelings and philosophies have been affected by living here? Well, totally. I mean, I think I moved to France, you know, uh, I drank wine occasionally and I loved it. But, you know, I in in visiting farmers all over France when I first came to write my the French Farmhouse Cookbook, I really came to understand the regionality of wine and how so many farmers at that time, and this is probably 25 years ago, you know, they had a little vineyard of their own. And so they would make this wine that was very fruity and sort of almost like berry juice. Um, and what I realized then was what was most important to the French farmer, who are simple folk with innately sophisticated sense of food, was they wanted the wine that they made because they knew it went with their food. So fast forward to today, where it's, you know, a farmer can't really do that anymore. It, it They don't have time. It costs more money to do that than it does to go buy wine. So I I think that my attitudes are totally about the regionality of wines and also the fact that wine is a, a universe of its own. So when we talk about what goes with what, um, sometimes I step back and I say, you know, I'm not sure that that's the important part of wine. I think the important part of wine is the wine and its universe of flavor. As opposed I like that. to I like the, which wine goes exactly with which food. Uh, yeah, I think that's something that's, uh, I think that people feel so confined by what they should be doing or the, you know, proper etiquette as they perceive it. So I think it's, it's great to, to encourage people to sort of step into this universe. And what I really like is that you do get out and talk to the farmers. And I think that, you know, that's something also that comes through in your, in your food writing that you're, you're really out there appreciating, I guess, what is um, like fundamentally what makes cuisine here so amazing, which is getting out with um, seasonal ingredients and things that are being grown and made here. So anyway, I think that that is a great, great thoughts to apply to wine as well. So um, I know that you hosted wine tastings in your home for a long time. And I think that you had a caviste who you were telling me really helped sort of reshape people's ideas on wines. And you had some very specific examples, which I really like. So can you share some of that with the listeners, maybe um, what discoveries or what in what ways your you or your French guests' minds may have changed about wine and how to consume it? It's a funny story, really, because I met Hervé Lestage. That's the caviste. He has um, La Feuille de Vigne in both Enfleur and Le Havre. And I just met him accidentally by going to a shop, and I, he gave us a wine, a uh, Calvados tasting. Fell in love with the guy, so he started coming to my house and doing wine tastings first for my cooking classes, and then we developed a group of French people. So that was a whole other situation for me. I was the only American, and here we had in our group all these people with preordained ideas about wine. So Hervé walks in. Hervé was born in Bordeaux, never drinks Bordeaux, is all about discovery and all about the soul of the winemaker being the major ingredient in a good wine. So his whole discourse is he doesn't buy wine from anybody he doesn't deeply care for. 
And uh, he doesn't ever talk about the grape in a wine. He talks about the winemaker to the point that once in a wine tasting, we had photographs of winemakers and we did a blind tasting of wine. We had to match the wine with the photographs of the winemaker. And we did it. We often would get it right. And so it, it opened up to me a whole, uh, you know, that's how I feel about food. I mean, I went to talk to farmers because I wanted to know what they were thinking about while they were working. I wanted to know what motivated them. So in a sense, I guess I was after their soul too. So I love that idea about wine. And uh, we had a, a French farmer who was part of our group and he would only drink um, Burgundy. That's it. He would only drink Burgundy. Well, you know, 10, ten years later, he's one of the most uh, ready to try something new. So by understanding a wine through the soul of its maker, you get a whole different sense of what you're drinking. It's quite romantic and hard to seize, but when you approach wine that way, all of a sudden it becomes very democratic and you drink what you love instead of what someone's telling you to drink. I do. I like that approach. I have to say that, you know, there, is, there are so many wines, so, so many wines that, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to know them all. And it's a subjective thing. So I do know when I spend time with uh, my partner's family, they live in Beaujolais. And so we do a lot of wine tasting, but mainly where my father-in-law knows the people. And so we go, we do these tastings and we buy wine. And, you know, I have to say, I haven't tasted every wine in Beaujolais. They may or may not be the quote unquote best, but there's something really enjoyable about tasting with the people who made it. And, and you do, you feel like you're, well, I feel like I'm not just su supporting small um, growers, but also it, it just brings something else to the experience for me that, that is hard to just, you know, to, to find anywhere just in any bottle. So I, I appreciate that. And I agree. Well, it you is, know, it is there's another point. This romantic that I, thing, but. No. Sorry, sorry, Forrest. I was just going to bring up. You know, we taste these fabulous wines in the wine tasting, and then Hervé would look up and he goes, Okay, you found a wine you love. You never have to drink it again. Now you have to go find something new because there are thousands oh. of wines to try. And that is so anti what we all think. Wow. I've actually just kind of, I paused for a second because it kind of blew my mind a little bit. You know, I do feel like I, I live by that a lot of times when there's uh, places I like to go and eat and even bars that I like to drink in. I always want to, you know, go find the next cocktail bar. And so in, in many cases, I'm not returning to the same thing. I'm looking for the next thing. And I don't always, sometimes I feel a little guilty about that. Like, I don't know if that's the best approach or not, but now you've made me feel a little better about always kind of looking to discover the next, the next new to me thing. So very interesting. Um, and I know you had mentioned also during some of these tastings, uh, the order, maybe swapping up the order, or maybe it's just your feelings. I don't know if it was during the tastings, but, you know, starting with red, going, starting with white, going to red, and then going back to white, maybe for the cheese pairing. And I think I, I feel very, very comfortable with that, but I do think it's not something that many people uh, appreciate yet. So can you talk about your feelings on that or your observations? I can. Yes, I can. And in fact, what the whole experience of wine, I use the word democratic and, 
you know, again, I, I, after 20, more than 20 years of, of tasting with, with my now friend Hervé, I mean, we did so many different things, but one of the things too is, you know, what you learn is the wine that you love will go with whatever food you're serving. And of course there are exceptions. You don't want to serve asparagus with, with a deep red or, but you can start with a white for the aperitif. And often the aperitif is a quaffing wine. It's a wine you drink quickly. You don't really labor over it. You just enjoy it. Then you go to a red for the meal. There you're going to be maybe more involved in the wine. And then cheese, contrary to what we think, really is highlighted by white wine. So there is no reason to not go back to white wine with the cheese. And what you do to clear your palate is you have a bite of cheese first, and then you go into the white wine. Because the the fat in the cheese sort of rebal rebalances your palate so that you can then accept the white wine. I am totally on board with that. I mean, I've had this discussion with many friends and um, that I don't think that red wine is always what does justice to cheese. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in pairing cheese with, with other things besides red wine, including cider, including cocktails and definitely white wine. So uh, I, I always love to talk to people who share that, share that view and, and can encourage other people to just break out of the, the always red wine cheese mindset. So, um, and what about, I know we've talked about natural wine in the past and you've got some feelings or maybe some evolving feelings. Uh, can you share some of those with the listeners? Well, first I want to say, Forrest, I love it that you're asking for my feelings rather than my thoughts. <clears throat> because wine is a feeling thing. Wine is a living thing. And it's changing and growing all the time in the bottle and in your glass. So natural wines are the big thing. They're the big trend for the last five to maybe, I don't know. I don't actually know if it's 10 or five or, but they're quite, they're very trendy. So a natural wine in short is a wine that's made in the vineyard. Now people will say, well, all wine is made in the vineyard, but actually a natural wine is, is made from grapes that are heavily supervised by the vintner. The grapes are squeezed, the juice goes into the barrel, and that's it. Nothing is added. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The only sulfur involved is on the vine. So these wines are unpredictable. They're like, they're kind of, I think of them as young adolescents, where one minute they're incredibly smooth, wonderful, and then they'll just go off into left field and become something different the same wine. So a natural wine is very, very unpredictable. And I'm, I'm not an expert at wine period or natural wines, but I find they're fun. They're amusing in general. I'm speaking in gross generalities. They're, uh, sometimes you get one and it's just awful because it's gone south. They often have what's called a murmur, which is a little bit of pétillance, a little bubble that goes away after a few minutes. But they're a whole universe of this fun, angular kind of, I mean, watch adolescents playing sports and that's natural wine. That's, I love that description. Yeah, it's, I do, I completely agree. I think that um, they're unpredictable and I do think they're kind of a surprise in a bottle. So, which could go in either way. It means that you can get something that's 
um, really amazing that you never expected, or also you could get something that's not really amazing at all, kind of in the other direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not a, a necessarily a proponent of natural wines and I'm not against them. And I think that people have very strong feelings often, especially people who, who love natural wines and they feel like it's natural wine or nothing. And I think that there's, there's interesting aspects to natural wine, but I also appreciate the consistency of wine that has some, you know, has had some intervention. So, um, well, and so, yeah, one, it's, you it's, know, it's we an need, interesting topic. We need to understand that there are words in our language that now mean nothing. And natural is one of those words. It actually doesn't mean anything anymore. So you can see natural on a bag of potato chips, like you can see natural on hairspray. <clears throat> and if you actually go to the definition, you know, it's, it doesn't mean anything. So a natural wine, a natural wine mostly is that is one that has nothing added to it. So there's no stabilizer. And I love that. I mean, I love pure. Um, so I think it's really fun to try natural wines, but I'm not always willing to take the risk. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, natural, it's also in so many things in the food world, you've got artisanal or in the co cocktail world, you've got craft. And again, I agree with you. There's these words that, yeah, it's, it's a shame because words should have meaning, but they, they've just become marketing tools, unfortunately. Um, now, what about, I think something else that people often feel a bit of um, hesitancy about is something that you already mentioned a little bit with kind of quaffing wines, things that are, let's just, you know, sit down, have fun and not overthink it too much. So what about drinking wines or maybe wines for your meal versus quaffing wines? Well, you know, it's funny because I was at, <clears throat> I was buying a wine the other day to go with oysters. So the, I got a Muscadet, which is a wine from oyster growing region <clears throat> near Bordeaux. And honest to, you know, it's great with oysters, but there was some left over and I tasted it later and it's definitely a quaffing wine to me. I mean, it's, it's a wine you drink, it's wine, it's got a little, it's got a lot of minerality, it's quite wonderful, and it depends on the Muscadet, of course, this was a nice one. Those are wines that, and often, um, I, I don't want to, like, insult an entire category of anything, a quaffing wine can be excellent but let's say so many rosés are quaffing wines because it's hot. You're on the balcony. You know, you just you just want to just enjoy the sun and the wine and everything. And maybe you're just drinking without thinking about it. That's a quaffing wine. But then when you get into more serious, maybe wine pairing or wine tasting, then you might go into, there are some rosés that you will want to taste and you want, will want to focus on. They're more heavily constructed they're, you know, um, a, a drinking wine is one that is going to evolve the glass as you drink it and as you move your glass. A quaffing wine won't. It's not meant to. It's meant to give you pleasure instantly. Now, um, when it comes to wine pairing with your food beyond, uh, beyond quaffing wines, do you have any either favorite pairings that might go with recipes from your current book or just kind of favorite pairings, wines with food in general? Well, let's see. I, for instance, have a recipe in Plat du Jour on page 115 for saffron-scented lamb, vegetable, and chickpea soup that you serve over couscous. So 
my pick for that is a long duck, a red long duck. The long duck is in the southwest, quite south, and uh, near the, it goes all the way to the Spanish border. And there's a particular one that I love from the Domaine de Lortus, small winery, uh, not a natural wine, but a very clean, pure, robust wine that reflects the sun. Um, so that's, you know, I, I do, I do go the red with, with kind of robust meals. Um, for an Alsatian Flammekuch, which is a pizza, kind of like a pizza with cream and bacon and onions, I want a Pinot Gris because that is the, the, the flag of the wine industry in Alsace. And because it is, I know it's going to go perfectly with this Alsatian recipe. It's about terroir. It's about the soil. The soil that produces the ingredients of the food is producing the wine grapes. So more often than not, that's where the marriage is a perfect one. Uh, in, if for a pizza la dière, which is a pizza from Provence with anchovies, you know, very salty and yummy and olives and tomatoes, you want something simple with this, like, like a Côte de Provence. Uh, it could be red, white, or rosé. Really, your choice there. Because the food is is going to dominate no matter what. So what you want is something that's going to accompany that. And just for the listeners, there are recipes for all three of those in Susan's current book, um, but, which I have flagged recently because I want to be making them soon. So that's why I recognize them from that. So um, when you're in Paris or actually even outside of Paris, I know that you mentioned the wine shop in Enfleur and Les Havre. Uh, are there other places where you'd like to go to buy wine or drink wine? Do you have any recommendations for when people are in France where they might go and enjoy it? Well, honestly, I'm very uh, myopic about my wine choices, but um, I would say, you know, I have a huge loyalty to the wine shops I mentioned in Enfleur and Le Havre based on years of, and you know, the thing is, I hardly ever taste the same wine twice. Um, but in Paris, there are two wine shops. One is called La Dernière Goutte in the 6th arrondissement, and the other is called Vino Sapiens in the 7th. Those two wine shops I trust. Um, I have a very long relationship with La Dernière Goutte, and I think you can, it's a fabulous shop. Vino Sapiens is newer to me, and it's funny when you, when you for me, it takes a long time to for me to trust when I'm buying wine. So I I, uh, I don't have a million places to recommend because sometimes when I love a wine, I don't follow my friend's advice and I'll go straight to the winery and order six bottles, you know. So it's that you can do that so easily in France. You find a wine, you call the winery, they ship or they tell you where in your area you can get their wine. So there's very direct contact with with wine growers here. Yeah, that is something that I love about about living in France. That there's almost no area that you can go to where you can't find wine being made and winemakers that you can visit, except actually where we have our country house, which is isn't an area that doesn't make any wine. But you know, we've got Calvados, so I, I'm happy enough with that. Um, have you, but you have know, you um, in Normandy, there is only one winery in Normandy. So the wine of Normandy. And you're not in Normandy, I know, but the wine of Normandy is apple cider, hard apple cider. 
Absolutely. So that's going to change with climate change. That'll change. And in the Middle Ages, there were wineries in Normandy, but even then the wines weren't good. You know, you read about these meals with the bishops. I mean, the, it was the clergy who had the wine, and they hated the wines of Normandy because it's not a climate for wine. But it will be. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, I was actually doing... Um, they do these walks in the the Loire, these uh, VVR walks. It's Vin Vin. I can't remember what it stands for, but these Rando in yes. the Loire in September. And the one that we did this last September, there was uh, obviously a wine expert there doing um, some presentations and was talking about how, you know, in in just a decade we're going to have some changes to these wines and these wine regions because of climate yeah. change. So, Definitely. so yes, it's a very valid point. Um, yeah. Oh. Um, all right, we are kind of coming closer to the end of our of our half hour. So, um, can you just before we move into the cocktail of the month uh, segment, can you maybe tell listeners where they can find you online? I know you've got some new projects with Dancing Tomato, which I'm very tomatoes, which I'm very excited about. So, um, maybe you could just share how people can follow you or um, you know check you out online. Thank you. Yes. Well, I do. I have a whole new universe called Dancing Tomatoes and you can go to dancingtomatoes.com. It's plural tomatoes. And there find uh, what I'm up to now, blog, videos, etc. And uh, Plat du Jour, my newest book, of course, is available at all brick and mortar bookstores, which would be my preference. But of course, it's available online too. And uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there under dancing tomatoes and under Susan Herman Loomis. And I'd just be delighted to meet you all virtually for now. Uh, I'm sure when, when the fog has lifted, I'll be in the U S uh, teaching as I have done for the last 20 years. And I love to, to travel around and teach. So, so, but for now it's, it's www.dancingtomatoes.com. And I will, uh, as always, put links to that in the show notes, listeners. So in case you don't have a pen to note that down right now, you'll be able to find it online. And um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Susan, to give the listeners the cocktail of the month recipe. Okay. This is from my dear friend, Chuck Malady in Portland, Oregon, who has written a book called How to Drink Well. And this is my go-to foo-foo cocktail. It is 40 milliliters of gin. 30 milliliters of bitters, Campari, Dolan, Suze, whatever you have, 25 milliliters of triple sec or orange shrub, and 20 milliliters, well, I actually use 30 milliliters of lemon juice. You mix that up, you shake it and with some ice, and then you strain it into a, I drink it out of a champagne glass, it is the most gorgeous kind of deep pink cocktail and good for any season. It's called Jasmine. Jasmine. Lovely. I'm going to put that recipe in the show notes as well with a link out to the, the creator and the book. And with that, I will say thank you, Susan, for joining me. It's been a real pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Well, thank you, Forrest. The and pleasure is mine. Good. Well, and I'm looking forward to when we can do it again in person. And with that, I will say that's a wrap for this month's episode. So come back in the next few months. We will be talking to you some more interesting people. Um, 
we've got Anma who has done Instantly French coming up soon. We're going to have Jennifer Greco who's going to be talking about uh, cocktails and cheese. We've, we've got a few good things planned for the first half of the year. So, so you know, keep us keep us uh, in your feed on your phone or wherever you listen to us. And with that, I will also say thank you to Susan for joining us. Thank you to World Radio Paris for editing and production. Uh, thank you to Sun Little for the music that we use. I will put links to all of these people and other things mentioned in our show notes. As usual, I remind you to drink responsibly. And one final ask, if you like what we're doing, don't forget to head over and leave a review on iTunes. Apparently, that makes it easier for people to find us and makes me know that I'm not just shouting into a void and that someone's listening and cares. So with that, I will say until next time, cheers. Shiver by